What's up, everybody? Yeah, in the name of Jesus, amen? Yeah, holla. According to this, you got to stand up, all right? <laughs> so there's two scriptures I'm going to read. My name's Luis. Uh, the first one is Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Second scripture, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Amen? Giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Yeah, how about that, huh? In Jesus' name, thanks. That was the greatest scripture reading in the history of this church. We're... Just give him a second, Luis. Just give him a second. I said, oh, we don't need to check it. It'll be fine. And I've commented before, it's, it's literally never fine. So I don't know why I keep saying that. Um, my name's Cameron. Uh, it's great to be with you all. Uh, I am the lead pastor here, one of the elders here. And we'll just jump right in. Um, in his brilliant book, The Air We Breathe, like, I don't know, it was about a year ago, we did like a church-wide book club through this book, but uh, Anglican minister Glenn Scrivener, he argues that so many of the basic values that we take for granted in the modern West, specifically equality, compassion, consent, enlightenment, science, freedom, progress, what he argues that these were specifically Christian contributions to the world. Um, in other words, had Christianity not existed and developed as it had, uh, 21st century Americans would almost certainly not privilege these ideas the way that we do. Now, I know that's crazy, and I should disclaim, he's not saying, his argument isn't that Christians have always perfectly lived into these things, of course nor that the common understanding of these things as we sort of see them today always aligns with a historically Christian understanding of these things, of course, but that the penetration of Christian ideas into our world makes a version of them seem so inevitable and obvious that we don't even notice them. Um, it's the water that we're swimming in, like the David Foster Wallace thing, you know, two fish come up to each other and say, how's the water today? And one's, what's, what's water? What are you talking about? That's where they sit. And, you know, it would take an hour for me to even gesture at a comprehensive argument that might have any chance of co convincing you that that's true if you're skeptical of that idea. I instead, I say, read uh, Glenn Scrivener's book. Uh, if you don't want to read that, you want something larger and more intense, read Tom Holland, uh, a non-Christian uh, historian who wrote a really amazing book called Dominion that travels in the same ideas. Or Sharon James has a shorter book that travels in the same ideas. Uh, for now, you're just going to have to be mad if you disagree with me and just say whatever. Um, but for example, take our view of children, physical fitness, and disability. Scrivener writes, quote, Plato thought that in order to be worth, this is Plato, like the father of Greek philosophy. He thought that in order to be worth rearing, 
Children must be, quote, malleable, disposed to virtue, and physically fit, end quote. If they did not prove themselves worthy, parents would, quote, properly dispose of them in secret so that no one will know what has become of them. Similarly, Aristotle, 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 father of of modern ethics in some ways, he thought that defective children should be exposed, that is, discarded at rubbish tips, abandoned on hillsides, thrown down wells, or drowned in rivers. Quote, as to exposing or rearing the children born, let there be a law that no deformed child shall be reared. Scrivener goes on, around the world and down through history, the vast majority of cultures have considered that we are better off without the weak. These are the fathers, like some of the most influential thinkers in human history. It is not something you can take for granted that the idea that someone physically weak in our culture should not be murdered. That is a Christian contribution to our society. Again, you want to make, argue for it? Go read the books. We don't have time. It was the Christian view of human dignity, of human dignity, the Christian command to honor all humans, and the actual Christian practice, they really did it, friends, the actual early Christian practice of caring for and serving the needs of all humans that made a vision of another life possible. And now, in some ways, it made it an obvious, so obvious that the alternative is unthinkable in some of these things. The second century critic of Christianity, Celsus, an ancient writer, he wrote that Christians, quote, are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, only slaves, women, and little children to believe. To which Jesus would say, yes and amen. Yes and amen. To which we as Christians say, yes and amen. Sharon James She writes that this bare fact of history, it is a bare fact of history that, quote, respect for every human life did not arise from the other world religions or from secularism. It, in fact, did arise from the biblical conviction that God created man and woman in his own image and that Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection forever confirmed that dignity, value, and worth of the human condition. So what does all this have to do with this morning's teaching and the scriptures that were just read for us? Let's pray, and we'll get into it. Father, we don't want to take it for granted. We don't want to be ignorant of history. We want to have a, um, a vision for the story of humanity that, that's, that's deeper and wider than the last decades in this one particular country or this one particular city even. And we see, Lord, that commands like the ones we're about to look at, in some ways as, as strange and you know, out of step with our time as they feel, Lord, they have borne fruit that has changed the course of the world for the better through the working of your Spirit. And so, Lord, we want to come to these ideas uh, with humility and with um, a a willingness and a readiness to receive what you have for us, God. So speak to us this morning. We need you so desperately. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have, we have two commands that were, we've been in a series uh, for, for several weeks, I guess this is week six maybe, 
uh, one anothering, the shape of life together in the family of God, where we've been taking these basic one another commands, or some scholars call them the mutuality commands, these commands all across the New Testament that are about what Christians, the people who make up the church, how they're supposed to interact with one another. The basic command of the, the new covenant family of God is to love one another. And we talked about that. We said, that's a good thing. Almost everyone says, yes, love people. That's good. That's right. But then you have to ask the question, well, what is that? What does that look like? And the rest of the commands you can think of, maybe not as an exhaustive explanation, but as an explanation. What does it look like to love people? Do these other things towards one another. And with the one another implies you are both giving and receiving this from the people sitting next to you. And so today, we turn to two more commands that we've, where we've grouped some together. We've done it either because they fall in the same passage or because the ideas are so similar and overlapping that they kind of mutually clarify one another. And today, we're looking at the commands to honor one another and to submit to one another. So the first, honor one another. And again, Romans 9, sorry, Romans 12, verse 9, says, let love be genuine. Again, you can't read these without always seeing how close love is in, prox in proximity to these commands. Love, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hate what is evil. Hold fast, hang on tightly to what is good. Here's a command. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor, which is what we'll focus on this morning. So outdo one another in showing honor. What is honor? Well, it comes from the Greek verb to me, a word with sort of economic roots that sort of, it describes an accurate appraisal or valuing of something. To honor something is to look at it and to ascribe the right value to it. So, you know, we, that makes sense to us when we think about like, the, I don't know, Portland housing market or something. Oh gosh, things are a little, maybe they're a little out of whack here. Maybe we're overvaluing some of these things, who knows? But take that same basic principle and then apply it to a human being. And it starts to sound crass because you're like, oh, apply an economic value. I know how this story ends. I know where this goes. This, this gets ugly and nasty and oppressive. If, if humans can be valued in economic terms, the idea is to honor, a, to honor a person is to recognize the value, worth, and dignity that they possess and then act towards them accordingly, to treat them in a way that is up to the task of that honor that they possess, that value, that appraisal that they have. So we have to ask the question, what kind of value do people have? What kind of value do people have? As we've already discussed, it's not a given that people assume humans have any value. There are popular worldviews that although, you know, it's uncomfortable, we struggle to sit in it, that if you really boil it down, they say humans really do not have any intrinsic value over against any other piece of matter in this universe, and yeah, yeah, we should try to treat people well or whatever, but at the end of the day, there's no foundation to valuing humans. So what's the Bible say? Well, the first bedrock principle, and we've talked about this recently uh, here as a community, is to talk about the value that all humans have as bearers, as possessors of the image of God. And, and if you don't know that theology, it's rooted, first of all, and primarily in Genesis chapter one, the creation of everything, including humans, and it declares that every human being, without exception, so if you've got a category of people in your mind that you wanna exclude from this, you have, to, you have to blow that up. It's for every single person, every human being. If they are a human being, this applies to them, without exception. They were created in the image of God, which means we are representatives that carry something, something of his essence within us. We're not divine, we are not God, but we are the clearest pointers 
to the divine, to God in all of creation. That's what the Bible is claiming. We were created then, as his image bears, for loving intimacy and for genuine partnership with God. Every one of you, every one of you, that is true of every single person who has been or ever will be born. Another way to put this, and even the structure of Genesis 1 and the, you know, the way the creation narrative crescendos points to the fact that there is no more glorious thing in creation than a human being, any human being, any one human being. That is what the, did you know the Bible claims that? Do Christians always act this way? <laughs> no, tragically. That's the claim from page one of the Bible. There is no more glorious thing, more thing imbued with divine significance than a human, a human, any human. So we might think this in the abstract, and it can be, but it can be way harder, way harder to hold on to this when we get close to individuals. I love this, these words from the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky. Uh, he puts in the mouth of one character in the Brothers Karamazov. He describes this reality. Listen to this. He says, the more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, I often make plans for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually face crucifixion if it were suddenly necessary. Yet I'm incapable of living in the same room with anyone for two days together. I know from experience, as soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs me and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One because he's too long over his dinner, another because he has a cold and keeps on blowing his nose. It's relevant. <laughs> I become hostile to people the moment they come close to me, but it has always happened that the more I hate men individually, the more I love humanity. I think he's onto something there. There is, we have, so many of us have this impulse to love people, love humanity, but how you treat the individual, actual flesh and blood person next to you tells a wildly different story. At least it's true for me. And we have to fight this impulse. We have to fight this impulse to honor and appreciate and love people. It can really, people, it can really only be expressed by honoring and appreciating and loving a person right in front of you. C.S. Lewis brings this challenge forward beautifully in his book, The Weight of Glory. Uh, There's another long quote, but bear with me. They're just too good, just too good. And I'm a bad editor. It may be possible, this Lewis, Weight of Glory, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. Talking about the glory that we're gonna have when we're with the Father in the new creation. But it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or the weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, take that in the lowercase g sense, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It's in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. 
Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. Their life is to ours as the life of a gnat, but the immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind as it is, in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between two people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be real and costly love, with deep feeling for the sins, in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence with which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, he means communion. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I got away with words. <laughs> You've never met a mere mortal. Every person you encounter is an image bearer of God with an eternal destiny somewhere. And if we could see, if we could have a glimpse to the kinds of beautiful creation that God is at work, even now, building in our neighbors, we would shudder. We'd be tempted to fall down in worship. I think Lewis is right. That's true of all people. That's true of all people, that they all have this dignity. But there's even more for Christians specifically. Because Christians are all, as well, made in the image of God. But, you know, this, this command is given to Christians how, what to do with one another. We have to remember that there are these other identity markers that Christians have been given to. We're, we're told that we become, by virtue of our relationship with Jesus, these beloved sons and daughters of the king. And when you become a son and daughter, you become an heir of the kingdom. You become one who is given, like, the, the most radically insane inheritance you could possibly imagine in the kingdom of God. More than that, Christians become temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made it so that the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, comes to make a home inside of you. Amen. It's crazy. Yeah. More than that, we're called members of the body of Christ, and usually you start thinking about that in functional terms, but think of it as the image demands. The body of Jesus, Jesus' physical representation in this world is us. It's the person sitting next to you if they are in Christ. The body of Christ, not an abstract, but through Jeff, the brain, <laughs> or Dan, the heart, whatever, you know? Cameron, the armpit, whoever it is, like the, the, that body of Christ image. We're not Christ, we're not God, but don't let, don't, you know, theologize away what, they're, what the New Testament authors are claiming. We are the representation, the hands and feet of Jesus in this world. The point of all this is that I want you, I've said this before, but I want you, I want me, this is a first preaching to me, I want us to become amazed with the people sitting next to us. I want us to become amazed, and then not just amazed, but curious, curious about the people next to us, and pursuant. But the amazement doesn't just stop there, but it's like, I actually want to make time to get to know this person and their story and what they like and what they don't like and how they were shaped and what they're into and you know, what gifts, all the things. Because they're the most glorious thing in creation that we can encounter. So, what does honoring look like then? 
It's to genuinely see and appreciate and then live in accord with who your brothers and sisters really are as image bearers, as beloved sons, as heirs of the kingdom, as temples of the Holy Spirit, as members of the body of Christ, and we could list dozens of other things as well. To see them as they really are and then to give them the dignity, respect, and value that they genuinely deserve. And then this ties us back into all the other commands. You go, okay, well, great. Okay, I see them, I value them, whatever. Now what do I do? It's all the things we've been talking about. This pushes you then to be the, these things, to love them, to forbear them, to forgive them, to receive their confession, to confess to them, to pray for them, to serve them, to carry their burdens, to encourage them, to teach them, to admonish them, and to submit to them. All of these things are the natural outflow of what we're talking about. And notice the almost competitive spirit here that this phrase gets, gets couched in, here in verse 10. Out, outdo one another. That's a good translation from the Greek. It's kind of a hard phrase to, to translate, but this captures, I think, the spirit of this thing. It's like, see who can honor our brothers and sisters with the most clarity, who can see one another most clearly for the glory that they have, and, and then to do something about it, to live accordingly. See who can do it. Like, outdo one another in showing honor. If you honor me, I'm going to honor you even more than you honored me, man. That's how it's supposed to be. It's, this continu- it's like this deepening, like, how low can you go? And not in some kind of ugly or an abusive kind of thing, but in a way that lifts up the other, imbues the other with dignity. Can you imagine? Can you just imagine if we created a church culture like this? what that would feel like, and how someone who doesn't believe in Jesus would feel if they came into this. And the assumption wasn't like, oh, who's this person, whatever, but it was like, oh, here's another image bearer of God. Maybe in different ways from what I do with my brothers and sisters here in the church, but nonetheless, that I honor and that I serve and that I care for and that I love and that I'm curious about and that I express wonder at. What would happen? Well, our next passage takes a similar idea and I think makes, kind of shines another light on the practical edge of it. So we jump to Ephesians 5. So this passage is about, the fundamental idea is about what does it look like when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? And this, is, this list of things isn't the only things that, they aren't the only things that happen when someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, but they are nonetheless a handful of things that Paul wants to make sure that you know. And I'm guessing they're not the things that you were expecting. Because oftentimes when we talk about people getting filled with the Spirit, that can, it can kind of be like this really radically sort of supernatural and wild thing, and sometimes that stuff happens. But listen to this. It says, don't get drunk with wine. Don't be con- you know, filled up in a way that like, you know, where wine becomes the controlling thing in you, for that's debauchery, but be filled with something else. Be filled with the Spirit of God. It's a command. That means it's not a given, something we have to yield ourselves to and, and pursue. Be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what, is, what happens then if you are successful in your mission to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Will you address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs? It's kind of like what, we talk, what uh, Bria taught us last week. Like, let the words of the psalms, the truths that have been expressed throughout history, let those words be on your, on your lips. Bless your, your brothers and sisters. Address one another with those words and with the songs. And not just the address, but actually sing and actually make melody to the Lord with your heart. Being filled with the Spirit means that you 
There's just this musical overflow. It's just like this beautiful picture, this musical overflow that comes out of you singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Also giving thanks. Did you know thankfulness is one of the markers of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Doesn't that seem so mundane? Give thanks always and for everything. This is an uncommon type of thankfulness that can find something to celebrate even in, even in difficult situations to God in the name of Jesus. And then the last thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, probably not what you're thinking of when you think of what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's one of the things. So what is this command? Submit to one another. It's from a Greek verb, hupotasso, which is a word made up of two parts. Hupo, which means under, and tasso, which means place. So it's literally to place underneath. To place underneath. So we could translate that submit, as the ESV has here, or to become subject to or subjected to, or subordinate yourself. All those carry the same idea. And we have to say right out of the gate, that is a contentious word, isn't it? Submit. And there's a lot of cultural baggage around that. There's a lot of debris. There's a lot of abuse of this term, especially. And then even if it's understood, you know, in a, in a biblically faithful way, there is still just a, always going to be a rub in a culture that places such a premium on autonomy and self-determination over nearly everything else. So to submit is to take the lower status position in a relationship and then to act accordingly. It's, it's very much in the spirit of what we talked about with honoring, but is to submit your preferences, your agenda, your goals to the person next to you. And the command right here is for, for this to be something, a one another relationship. You receive this and you do this for others. So again, we have that same image, people trying to out-defer one another. And as contentious as this is, it's contentious to me. I, don't really love preaching it right now, to be honest with you. But we have to. We have to. As contentious as it is, we have to understand that what Paul, Paul was doing something completely revolutionary and unheard of in the ancient world by giving this verb, submit, this object, one another. The word submit in the ancient world, I mean, it was a very, very hierarchical society, as you might imagine. Ancient Near East, under the thumb of the Roman Empire, wherever you looked, hierarchy, and all kinds of stuff. But he gives this verb, submit, this object, one another. It's a command for every Christian without distinction and an evidence of the Spirit's work within every Christian without distinction. That is a wild idea. One commentator pointed out that there must be a willingness in the Christian fellowship to serve any, to learn from any, to be corrected by any, regardless of age, sex, class, or any other division. In an ancient world where social roles and status were super rigid, like, su- like far more rigid than probably any of us can imagine, and they often came with the expectation that the higher status person's um, interests were always to be privileged over the lower status person's. This was turning some of the most foundational ways that inner personal relationships worked on their heads. Theologian John Barclay says, the simple but powerful word, one another, turns a one-way relationship of power and superiority into a mutual relationship of reciprocal difference, where each seeks to promote the interests of the other. 
So yes, people are genuinely called to submit to real people. This isn't just like a spiritual, you know, vagary here. To real people, it's within a framework of relationships, of mutual, all-encompassing, almost competitive privileging of the others over yourself, whatever your role and position is. How might a relationship look when both people are prioritizing the good of the other, deferring to the other, prioritizing the other? It's actually hard to say because it still feels like we see it so infrequently, doesn't it? We have to say this command marks a transition into another passage in Ephesians that deals with household codes. So Paul, you've probably heard that, you've probably heard, and you've, if, you know, if you've been in Portland a long time, you've probably like dog-eared this, like I hate this passage of the Bible or whatever. Um, but Paul transitions to examine the call to submit through, to one another through the lens of three foundational relationships. He talks about wives and husbands, he talks about children and parents, and he talks about slaves or servants and masters. And what's especially interesting about this is that Paul didn't just make up the idea to address, the, address these six groups and these three relationships like on his own. He was very, scholars unanimously agree he was clearly interacting with the common and strictly followed Greco-Roman household codes, which were always addressed to the patriarch of the household and with instruction about how he should rule the various ontologically inferior people in his home, the women, the children, and the slaves. So to look at that passage in detail would be would take several sermons. We should do it at some point because it's the scriptures and we need to understand it. That's not today. The point for now is that Paul's teaching were like a slow motion bomb that detonated the oppressive heart of the social codes that they were swimming in. These teachings reshaped marriage into a relationship that reflects the relationship between Christ and the church an ever-deepening dance of submission met with giving up one's life and respect met with love and cherishing, deeper and deeper and deeper. They reshaped parental relationships from something that was all about just utility and you know, basically treating your child as like an object that could be used however you see fit to something where Paul says, like, this is now something, where I lost my, my place here, into something of obedience, yes, for the children, and honor, but for the first time met with gentleness, and the word is nourishment. He's addressing fathers, and it's the word for almost like nursing, nursing your child. It isn't like it was before, Paul is saying. They, they reshaped the economic relationship between slave and master, and we all shudder at that, rightly so. We did actually do a whole sermon on this relationship and how these teachings ultimately um, well, I'll, I'll get to it here. Uh, as part of our, uh, gosh, that was in 2020, I guess, that we did that. Um, again, we don't have time for it now. I know those are, <laughs> you can't just bla- blaze over rules related to managing your slaves, but I'm going to try. Um, but my point now is it reshaped the economic relationship between slave and master into one of mutuality. He, tell, he gives commands to the slave to, to honor the master and so forth. Then he says to the master, do the same. Do the same. I mean, we can hardly understand how revolutionary this was. So from one of slave and master into one of mutuality and deepest equality, ultimately undoing the slavery of institution altogether in due time. There may still be roles of leadership reserved, and there are in all kinds of contexts, 
but the old oppressive logic has been so undermined that it is unrecognizable. Shame on us when we misuse one of the most socially transformative teachings in human history into an excuse to domineer, belittle, coerce, neglect, and abuse. Mutual submission is the new framework, and leaders' roles, wherever they are found, have been resurrected into something like responsibility, sacrificial love, and service that's met with the same things and then goes deeper. So let's step back into the general command. We've, we just skipped ahead into later chapter 5, chapter 6. Now we're coming back to verse 21, which is what we're focusing on today. Submit to one another. In the church, we are to always be on the lookout to confer to our sisters and brothers the higher status, the greater privilege. But the crazy thing is, as you're trying to do this for them, if all's going according to plan, they're trying to do it for you, right? It's the same spirit of what we read in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. No one becomes the punching bag. No one becomes the second-class citizen. No one loses their agency or dignity because we seek to serve, honor, and submit to lift others up. Instead, others are seeking to do the same for us once again. A race to the bottom in the most beautiful way. Can you imagine what would happen if we did this? How would leadership be transformed? How would marriages and families and workplaces and church and every other arena of our life change if the people of God were all committed to this kind of loving, mutual submission? And more than that, how do we start? How do we start? Well, he gives us a hint in that last phrase. We submit to one another, not just because that's a nice thing to do, but out of reverence for Christ. The starting place to get into the game here is to look to Jesus and to see what he, that he has done this on your behalf. You enter into this relationship, Jesus, where you recognize the depths to which he has gone to honor and serve you. If that sounds like foreign, just, you got, just read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. See how Jesus does this even to the point of laying down his life to die on a Roman cross to forgive you for your sins and to purchase you a future with him. And so when you believe that truth, I mean, there's only one natural response to like see, like to really, to, to hear that and to believe it, to go, yeah, I think that's real. I think that's true. I think this, is, this Jesus is real and he really did what's being described here. The only rational response is to seek to submit yourself to him, right? Oh, you're God and you did that for me and you love me and you have this beautiful plan and you promise to wipe away every tear and restore every bit of dignity that's been lost and institute final justice and righteousness and peace in the world. Okay, I submit. I will honor and serve you, Jesus. And you've entered the dance. You've entered the dance. So secure in Christ Secure in who you are, who he's declared you to be, who he has made you by virtue of his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Then you can take the risk to be the first one, to be the first one to come and to submit to another. You can take the risk to be the first domino that falls. 
trusting that Jesus is doing the same work in others and that his church is growing to maturity. Secure in him, we can begin to give ourselves away and to even find strength to say no when our efforts to submit are met with evil because sometimes that does happen. I know lots of us are thinking like, okay, well, what if a bad actor steps into this thing and they're like, I'm going to use this as, you know, to ex- sweet. There's a whole sea of people that, I can, that just want to be exploited by me, basically. That happens sometimes. Well, we have all these other commands too. We have commands to protect one another and to call out sin and to challenge and to teach and to encourage and to protect. All, you know, it falls in a network of all this stuff. This is not carte blanche for any bad actor to take advantage of. So secure in him, we can give ourselves away. We can even find the strength to say no when our efforts to submit are met with evil. So Jesus... Jesus starts this whole thing and we, secure in him, having received this from him, we can enter the game and we can begin to do this for others. And yes, at times it'll be awkward and painful. Have you ever been in like a Portland nice-off when two people are like, let's do what you want to do. No, let's do what you want to do. No, let's really do what you want to do. No, let's really do what you want to do. No, let's, we're really going to do what you want to do. We're going to do what you want to do, you know? (laughs) Sometimes it's like somebody just needs to make a decision. Let's, let's get going. Um, There's awkwardness. There can be. But there is beauty and power and dignity and life in this teaching, friends. This is not people climbing and clamoring to take status and position over the other. This is people saying, I defer. How can I serve you? How can I make space for you and for you and for what you need and what you want? All the while, people trying to do that for you. It's beautiful. And it's foreign. Because we don't see this a lot. We don't see this a lot. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We could spend hours on unpacking that phrase's relationship to this, but we can stop there. So the church, I mean, any one of these commands we've been looking at would make the church this, but this one especially, especially in a day of clamoring and clawing and fighting for power and position and all this stuff. This could make us a radical, a radical kingdom of God counterculture in our city. There was a John Mark Comer sermon at Bridgetown. The title I just, I just loved. It was a good sermon too, but, but I'll just quote the title. Um, yeah, the, the, the title was A Community of Honor in a Culture of Contempt. That's what we're striving to be. And it starts very, very, very small. It starts with looking at your brother and your sister sitting right next to you, seeing them for who they really, truly are, and then treating them accordingly. 